Uh, ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guests, uh, my name is Tim Besley and I'm a member of the Economics Department here at the LSE. Uh, let me begin by offering you a warm welcome to the LSE to what I'm sure will be a memorable evening. Apart from offering you this welcome, my role is only to give a, a brief introduction to our chair and to thank those who uh, made this event possible. The event this evening is supported by the LSE Economics Department and the Suntory Toyota International Centers for Economics and Related Disciplines. And it's been organized in partnership with the Bank of England. And I thank in particular my former colleague, Charlie Bean, for his input into organizing the event. Uh, the speakers will offer their thoughts on what economists and policymakers should learn from the financial crisis. And events uh, in Cyprus in recent days serve as a timely reminder that the fallout of that crisis that began in 2008 is far from uh, over. And all of our panelists have played a hands-on role in policy during this period. Now, the LSE is known for many things. Among them, of course, it's the alma mater of Mick Jagger, who might have been a graduate of the economics department had events not taken a different turn. And in keeping with this, tonight's panel is most definitely of rock star proportions in the world of economics and policymaking. It brings together a group of economists and policymakers with a remarkable array of experience, all of whom have served with great distinction and had careers as influential academics. Now, I will just briefly introduce the chair for this evening, Sir Mervyn King. He's, of course, Governor of the Bank of England, and prior to that had a distinguished academic career, including being a member of the LSE Economics Department, during which time he founded the Financial Markets Group. As you all know, Mervyn will be stepping down from his position as governor later this year. He's been at the bank for around 20 years, the past 10 as governor, and he's brought a commitment and integrity to these roles at all times. And he stands out, I think, above all, as a beacon to the ethic of public service. And as with all of our panelists, his willingness to step outside of the comfort zone of academia to make a contribution to public life is something to which we should, for which we should all be grateful. So I'll now hand over to the Governor to get the panel underway. Thank you very much. Tim, thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. The title of tonight's session is What Should Economists and Policymakers Learn from the Financial Crisis? Well, don't start from here might be the, the first uh, lesson, which suggests that we need to look not just at what happened during the crisis, but also well before. The phrase, the crisis, has been used to mean so many different things. There is the banking crisis, the sharp downturn and subsequent slow recovery in the world economy, the euro area crisis and the fiscal crisis. But whichever crisis we are talking about, it's far from over. And there will surely be many unexpected twists and turns before we can truly say that the crisis is indeed over. Much has been written and spoken about the events of the past five years. And although we have learnt much already, there is surely so much more that we can and need to learn. And tonight's session is designed to do just that. Many years ago, Peter Diamond told me that on any given subject, there are at most only three papers or contributions that one really needs to read to understand the issue. 
As he helpfully pointed out, the trick is to know which the three are. <laughs> well, tonight the subject is so broad that three may not be quite enough. But with us this evening are the four people whom I think we would all choose to guide us through the maze of the crisis and help us learn the lessons. They are, as Tim said, extraordinarily distinguished. Ben Bernanke is the chairman of the Federal Reserve, the most eminent of economists, famed for his writings on the lessons from the Great Depression. Olivier Blanchard is the economic counsellor for the International Monetary Fund, professor at MIT, and one of the world's most distinguished macroeconomists. Larry Summers is professor of economics at Harvard and a former U.S. Treasury Secretary. Known to everyone at LSE, there are few parts of economics to which Larry has not made important contributions. And Axel Weber, also after a distinguished academic career, became the president of the Deutsche Bundesbank, member of the governing council of the European Central Bank, and is now chairman of UBS. And they will speak in that order. I'm privileged to count them all as friends, but tonight they are here to tell us what we need to learn as the lessons from the financial crisis. So it's with enormous pleasure that I invite Ben Bernanke to take the podium today. I'm very pleased to participate in a conference which I view as primarily designed to honor my good friend Mervyn King. As Mervyn noted in a recent speech in New York, he and I had adjoining offices at MIT when we were young academics, and we didn't quite anticipate that 30 years later we would also be colleagues but as central bankers. So as then as now, I have always valued his, his insight. The topic of the session is lessons learned from the financial crisis. For me, Perhaps the central insight is that the recent crisis, despite its many exotic features, was in fact a classic financial panic. A system-wide run of hot money away from assets whose values suddenly became uncertain. In that respect, the crisis was akin to many other financial crises faced by governments and central banks, including that most venerable of central banks, the Bank of England, over the centuries. The response to the crisis likewise followed the classic prescriptions of liquidity provision, liability guarantees, asset evaluation and disposition, and recapitalization where necessary. And although the crisis had classic features, to a significant extent, it also took place in a novel institutional context, making diagnosis and response all the more challenging. For example, in the United States, collateralized wholesale funding rather than conventional bank deposits constituted the hot money, and run pressure was experienced not only by banks, but by diverse other institutions, such as structured investment vehicles. In addition, the scale and complexity of globalized financial institutions and markets made it difficult to predict how the crisis would evolve or to coordinate the response. One of the few positive aspects of the crisis was the extraordinary degree of international cooperation achieved among policymakers, including the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve, in responding to these events. 
Because I've developed these themes in some detail elsewhere, I thought today I would tackle a slightly different and more recent issue that has arisen in the aftermath of the crisis, the issue of whether in the widespread easing of monetary policy we are seeing a competitive depreciation of exchange rates. Like other aspects of the crisis, the notion of competitive depreciation has strong classical antecedents, particularly in relation to the global Great Depression of the 1930s. So let me start by briefly revisiting the older discussion and its evolution. As everyone in this audience certainly knows, on the eve of the Great Depression, the exchange rates of most industrial countries were determined by the rules of the international gold standard, or more technically, by the gold exchange standard, as foreign exchange, primarily dollars and pounds sterling, was used along with gold as a form of international reserves. The gold standard, which had been suspended during World War I, was painstakingly rebuilt in the 1920s. Unfortunately, the reconstructed gold standard had a number of very serious problems. For one, the exchange rates implied by the gold valuations that countries chose for their currencies following World War I were in some cases far from the levels necessary to achieve balance flows of trades and payments. Notably, as John Maynard Keynes pointed out in his famous pamphlet, The Economic Consequences of Mr. Churchill, the British pound was overvalued under the new gold standard, which disadvantaged British exports and contributed to weak economic conditions in the United Kingdom in the late 1920s. One of Mervyn King's predecessors as governor of the Bank of England, Montague Norman, who presided over both Britain's return to gold and its subsequent exit, said of the ill-fated choice of parity for the pound, only God could tell whether it was or was not the correct figure. To which another commentator added, but of course the deity may not be an economist. <laughs> another problem, which became clear as the global economy weakened and financial conditions deteriorated, was that fixed exchange rates under the gold standard were vulnerable to speculative runs. Although runs, or in some cases policy decisions, effectively took a number of countries off the gold standard in the early 1930s, the financial world was shaken to its foundation when the United Kingdom, the unofficial center of the global gold standard, was forced by a speculative attack to leave gold in September of 1931. Over the next five years, essentially all of the world's industrial nations left the gold standard, either de facto or de jure. Declines in the value of the departing nation's currency, sometimes very sharp ones, typically followed. The uncoordinated abandonment of the gold standard in the early 1930s gave, the idea, gave rise to the idea of beggar thy neighbor policies. According to this analysis, as put forth by important contemporary economists like Joan Robinson, exchange rate depreciations helped the economy whose currency had weakened by making that country more competitive internationally. Indeed, the decline in the value of the pound after 1931 was associated with a relatively early recovery from the Depression by the United Kingdom, in part because of some rebound in exports. However, according to this view, the gains to the depreciating country were equated or exceeded by the losses to its trading partners, which became less internationally competitive, hence, beggar thy neighbor. Over time, so-called competitive depreciations became associated in the minds of historians with the tariff wars that followed the passage of the Smoot-Hawley Tariff in the United States. Both types of policies were decried, and still are in some textbooks, as having prolonged the Depression by disrupting trade patterns 
while leading to an ultimately fruitless and destructive battle over shrinking international markets. Economists still agree that Smoot-Hawley and the ensuing tariff wars were highly counterproductive and contributed to the depth and length of the global depression. However, modern research on the depression, beginning with the seminal 1985 paper by Barry Eichengreen and Jeffrey Sachs, has changed our view of the effects of the abandonment of the gold standard. Although it is true that leaving the gold standard and the resulting currency depreciation conferred a temporary competitive advantage in some cases, modern research shows that the primary benefit of leaving gold was that it freed countries to use appropriately expansionary monetary policies. By 1935 or 1936, when essentially all major countries had left the gold standard and exchange rates were market determined, the net trade effects of the changes in currency were certainly very small. And yet, the global economy as a whole was much stronger than it had been in 1931. The reason was that in shedding the straitjacket of the gold standard, each country became free to use monetary policy in a way that was commensurate with achieving full employment at home. Moreover, and critically, countries also benefited from stronger growth in trading partners that purchased their exports. In sharp contrast to the tariff wars, monetary reflation in the 1930s was a positive sum exercise whose benefits came mainly from higher domestic demand in all countries and not from trade diversion arising from changes in exchange rates. Well, I'm talking about this because it has lessons for the present. Today, most advanced industrial economies remain, in varying degrees, in the grip of slow recoveries from the Great Recession. With inflation generally contained, central banks in these countries are providing accommodative monetary policies to support growth. Do these policies constitute competitive devaluation? To the contrary, because monetary policy is accommodative in the great majority of advanced industrial economies, one would not expect large and persistent changes in the configuration of exchange rates among those economies. The benefits of monetary accommodation in the advanced economies are not created in any significant way by changes in exchange rates. They come instead from the support for domestic aggregate demand in each country or region. Moreover, because stronger growth in each economy confers beneficial spillovers to trading partners, these policies are not bigger thy neighbor, but rather they are positive sum enrich thy neighbor actions. Again, the distinction between monetary policies aimed at domestic objectives and trade diverting exchange rate devaluations or other protectionist measures is critical. The former can be mutually beneficial, the latter is not. Indeed, it was this view that prompted the G7 central banks and finance uh, ministers to issue a statement in February agreeing to refrain from actions focused on achieving competitive advantage by weakening their currencies and reaffirming that fiscal and monetary policies would remain oriented toward meeting domestic objectives using domestic instruments. Among the advanced economies, the mutual benefits of monetary easing are clear. The case of emerging market economies is more complicated. To a first approximation, industrial countries are most concerned that at domestic aggregate demand be set at a level that best fosters price stability and a return to full employment at home. In contrast, many emerging market economies may be concerned not only with the level of domestic aggregate demand as needed to achieve domestic objectives such as employment and inflation, 
but with other considerations as well. First, because in recent decades, many of these countries have pursued an export-led strategy for industrialization. They may be leery of expansionary policies in the advanced economies that, all else being equal, tend to cause the currencies of emerging market economies to appreciate restraining their exports. Second, because many emerging market economies have financial sectors that are small or less developed by global standards, but open to foreign investors. They may perceive themselves to be vulnerable to asset bubbles and financial imbalances caused by heavy and volatile capital inflows, including those arising from low interest rates in the advanced economies. I agree that these challenges are significant. However, a few points should be made. Regarding the effects of monetary easing on exchange rates and exports, I would note that trade-weighted real exchange rates of emerging market economies, with some exceptions, have not changed much from their values shortly before the intensification of the financial crisis in late 2008. Moreover, even if the expansionary policies of the advanced economies were to lead to significant currency appreciation in emerging markets, the resulting drag on their competitiveness would have to be balanced against the positive effects of stronger aggregate demand in the advanced economies. Which of these two effects is stronger is an empirical matter. Simulations of the Federal Reserve Board's econometric models of the global economy suggest that the effects are roughly offsetting so that accommodative monetary policies in the advanced economies do not appear on net to have adverse consequences for output or exports in the emerging markets. A return to solid growth among the advanced economies is ultimately in the interest of advanced and emerging market economies as well. Regarding capital flows, it's true that interest rate differentials associated with differences in national monetary policies can promote cross-border capital flows as investors seek higher returns. But my reading of recent research makes me skeptical that these policy differences are the dominant force behind capital flows to emerging market economies. Differences in growth prospects across countries and swings in investor risk sentiment appear to have played a larger role. Moreover, the fact that some emerging market economies have policies that depress the values of their currencies may create an expectation of future appreciation that in and of itself induces speculative inflows. Of course, heavy capital inflows and their volatility pose challenges to emerging market policymakers whatever their source. Policymakers do have some tools to address these concerns. In recent years, emerging market nations have implemented macroprudential measures aimed at strengthening their financial systems and reducing overheating in specific sectors, such as property markets. Policymakers have also experimented with various forms of capital controls. Such controls raise concerns about effectiveness, cost of implementation, and possible microeconomic distortions. Nevertheless, the IMF, and they can speak for themselves, has suggested that in carefully circumscribed circumstances, capital controls may be a useful tool. So in sum, the advanced industrial economies are currently pursuing appropriately expansionary policies to help support recovery and price stability in their countries. As the modern literature on the Great Depression demonstrates, these policies confer net benefits on the world economy as a whole and should not be confused with zero or negative sum policies of trade diversion. In fact, the simultaneous use by several countries of accommodative policy can be mutually reinforcing 
to the benefit of all. So let me end these remarks as I began by paying tribute to Mervyn King. He's been a leader in the central banking community during an extraordinarily difficult period, and I wish him the very best in the next stage of his career. Thank you. told that this microphone works, so <laughs> I will not use this one. Uh, I'm honored and delighted uh, to uh, come to this event and then come to the conference which will follow in, in honor of, uh, in honor of uh, Mervyn. Uh, there are very few people who have thought as deeply about the lessons of a, of a crisis and then gone to actually change institutions and change the way policy is actually uh, conducted. Uh, than uh, Mervyn, and I should say Ben Ovar. This is not in his honor, but he <laughs> fully deserves it as well. Um, so it is, uh, I, th I think the world would be a very different, and uh, the light in this crisis has come from the behavior uh, and the actions taken uh, on monetary policy, and I have no doubt that if Mervyn, Ben, Mario, and others had not been there, uh, we would be in much worse shape. Uh, today uh, than we are. I thought I would uh, organize uh, my remarks around uh, five points, going from uh, general to specific, and uh, five points is not enough to cover all the angles, uh, but uh, we can come back to it in the, in the Q&A. So the first point is uh, to state the obvious, uh, that uh, humility uh, is in order. Uh, it's, it's clear that the great moderation had convinced too many of us uh, that the large macroeconomic crisis, financial crisis, banking crisis, were a thing of the past, uh, that they were not going to happen again. Maybe they would happen in emerging market countries. Uh, see the irony of it in the light of this crisis. Uh, but uh, that history was, was marching on. I think that was part of something even larger, uh, that uh, I think my generation, which was born after World War II, uh, lived, lived with the notion that the world was getting to be a better and better place and we knew how to do things better and better. That's not only in economics, uh, but in other, top, in other uh, fields as well. And uh, what we have learned, that's not true. Uh, history uh, repeats itself and uh, we should have known. The second point, which is, uh, again... Uh, Stating, stating the obvious. Many of my points are stating the obvious. Uh, the financial system matters. Uh, it matters uh, very much. Uh, now, it's not the first time that we are confronted with uh, what uh, Rumsfeld called the unknown unknowns, things we hadn't thought about uh, but, but happened. Um, there's another example of it, which is the oil shocks of the 1970s which I think we were, we were students and uh, basically we hadn't thought about it and it took a few years, uh, more than a few years, for economists to actually understand uh, what was going on. I think there's a difference between that shock, which was a very major one, and, and the financial uh, crisis uh, shock, which is that shock, after a few years, we concluded that we could think of it as yet another macroeconomic shock that we did not need to understand the plumbing 
about plumbing seems right in the case of oil. Uh, but we didn't need to understand the details of the oil market. But basically, when there's an increase in the price of energy or materials, we could just integrate it in the mall. And it led to a, to a richer view. But it remained very much a, a macro mall in which we integrated the implications of energy prices on inflation output and so on. This is different. Uh, what we have learned about the financial system <coughs> is that the uh, problem is in the plumbing and that you actually have to understand the plumbing. Before uh, I came to the fund, I thought of the financial system, and I was more guilty than most and surely more guilty, for example, than then. I thought of the financial system as a set of arbitrage equations. Basically, the Fed would choose one rate and then the expectations hypothesis would give you all the rates everywhere up to value Swiss premium, which might vary, but not very much. And it was really easy. And I thought of the uh, people on Wall Street as basically doing this for me, so I didn't have to think about it. And, and what we have learned is that that's just not, not the case. That uh, The problem with the financial system is, is the interaction of a myriad of distortions, of small shocks, which build on each other. And when there are enough small shocks, enough distortions... Uh, then uh, things can go very bad. Now, I think this has fundamental implications for macro, which is that we do macro on the assumption that we can look at aggregates in some way and then just have them interact in simple models. And I think it's still the way to go, but this shows the limits of it, which is that when it comes to the financial system, it's very clear that the details of the plumbing matter. And so I think this has led the profession to basically be much more micro-based or micro-focused in terms of how to think about the financial system. It also says this is a much more complicated problem than dealing, say, with uh, increases in the price of oil. Third point, um, again, to state the nearly obvious, uh, interconnectedness. Uh, and so in the financial sector, this has become uh, obvious you know, the way in which this crisis started in the U.S. and crossed the ocean in a matter of, of days and weeks, and then how each crisis, even in small islands, is thought to potentially have effects uh, on, on the rest of the world, um, is, is very, very striking. Uh, the complexity of the cross-border uh, claims by creditors and by debtors uh, clearly is something that uh, many of us have not fully realized. The uh, cross-border movements uh, triggered by the risk-off, risk-on movements and who, which country is a safe haven when and why, uh, this has become absolutely essential. So that, again, what happens in a part of the world cannot be ignored. You know, and the fact that we all spend so much time thinking about Cyprus in the last few days is, is an example of that. Uh, it's also true, actually, this is a parenthesis, uh, it's also true on the trade side. Uh, we used to think that there were interactions between countries because they export and they import, but for many countries, the ratio of exports and imports to GDP is of the order of 20%, 30%. So we thought, yes, yeah, in one country was doing badly, exports to that country would do badly, and therefore the uh, exporting countries would do badly. But we thought, in our minds, the effect was relatively small. And one absolutely striking thing, uh, of a, uh, fact of a crisis, is the collapse of trade. Uh, in 2009. Output went down, trade just collapsed, and countries which felt that they were not terribly exposed to trade 
turned out to be enormously exposed. And that, again, is something that we have learned. So interconnectedness is, 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 uh, is, is the, third, the third theme or third point. Fourth point, uh, returning to, to the financial system, uh, it's clear that the usual way you, you, we teach macro policies, you have fiscal policy, monetary policy, and it's very clear that the uh, my traditional monetary uh, and fiscal tools are just not good enough to deal with these very specific problems in the financial system. So this has led to the development of what may or may not become, I think well, time only will tell, the third leg uh, of, of uh, macroeconomic policies, which is macroprudential tools, which can in principle be addressed to specific issues in the financial sector. So they, they go from cyclical capital ratios uh, to loan-to-value ratios, or to extend the definition a bit, to capital controls. So that if there is a problem somewhere, you can target the tool at the problem and not use the policy rate, which basically is kind of an atomic bomb without uh, any, 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 any precision. Uh, the big question, I think, here, and I think that's a question we're going to uh, struggle with for a while, is how reliable uh, are these tools? How much can they be used? And I think the answer, both from some experiments before the crisis with loan-to-value ratios or during the crisis with uh, variations in cyclical, uh, uh, variations in capital ratios or loan-to-value ratios or capital controls such as in Brazil, for example, is they work, uh, but they don't work great. Uh, people and uh, institutions find ways around them so that in the process of reducing a problem somewhere, you tend to create distortions elsewhere. I think this is going to be a major challenge, whether we can use these tools. Some people say they haven't worked because they haven't been used with sufficient conviction, which I think is often true of capital controls, and if you're really serious about it, you can do it. But so far, uh, the issue is uh, very much, very much an open one. So this leads me to to the final point, which is the, the relation uh, between monetary policy and macroprudential uh, tools or macroprudential uh, policies. And it's clear that there are two-way uh, interactions, which is that, for example, uh, when Ben does uh, exp- expansionary monetary policy uh, quantitative easing and the interest rates on, on many assets are very close to zero, there's a tendency by many players to want to increase the rate of return and take risks. Some of this risk, actually, we want them to take, but some of this risk we don't want them to take. So there is the interaction of monetary policy on the financial system. Uh, you have it uh, the other way around, which is if you use macroprudential tools to, say, slow down the building in the housing sector, well, you have an effect on aggregate demand, which is going to decrease total demand and decrease output. So there are these interactions. And the question is, uh, how do you organize uh, the use of these tools. And, and from many, point of view, many points of view, it makes a lot of sense to have them under the same roof, <coughs> which in effect, in practice, will mean the central bank because my policy will, will stay at the central bank. And so, uh, but it, I think it raises very fundamental issues. And here, the Bank of England is very far ahead of, of many banks in thinking about, about the issues, which is that of uh, coordination between the two, but central bank independence. One of the major achievements, maybe of the last 20 years, uh, is uh, that many, most central banks have become independent 
that independence was given to them. But I think it was given to them because the mandate and the tools were very clear. The mandate was inflation, sometimes a dual mandate, but primarily inflation, something which can be looked at and, 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 and observed in time. And the tool was the policy rate, some short rate that could be used by the by the central bank to try to achieve the inflation target. It was very clear. In this case, you can delegate or give some independence to the institution in charge of this because it's perfectly well defined. Everybody can basically observe whether it's done or not and how it's done. If you think now of central banks as having this much larger set of responsibilities and this much larger set of tools, then the issue of central bank independence uh, becomes uh, much more much more difficult. I mean, do you actually want to give the central bank, the independent central bank, the right to choose loan-to-value ratios without any uh, supervision from the, from the political process? Uh, isn't this going to lead to a democratic deficit in a way in which a central bank becomes uh, too powerful, is in charge of supervision, macro-prudential tools, monetary policy? I'm sure there are ways out in which there could be independence with respect to some dimensions of monetary policy, maybe the traditional ones, and some supervision uh, for the rest or some interaction with the political process for the rest. But these are all issues that uh, we're all struggling to try to understand and think about uh, for the future. So we haven't, we haven't, uh, we have drawn some lessons, but we have many, uh, many steps to take. Thank you. It's a privilege and an honor uh, to be here today. I met Mervyn King for the first time in 19. Can you hear me? For the first time in uh, 1975, I was struck at that time that uh, he had the highest product of intellectual acuity and elegance of accent <laughs> anyone I had ever met. And that remains the case uh, today. Mervyn is a person whose thought and effort has wi ranged widely, and that is surely appropriate. There is an important difference between physical science and economic science. Physical science tries to understand a constant world better and better, a world that is not affected by the product of that science. Economic science, on the other hand, seeks to understand a changing world and a world whose functioning is importantly affected by economic thought. And that is surely the arc of Mervyn King's career as a central banker. Early on, playing a seminal role in the design of a highly influential inflation targeting regime, and as conditions warranted, playing a critical role in thinking about how to respond to profound uh, financial crisis. I want to reflect on two broad subjects uh, today, the ways in which I believe this crisis will force a substantial reconstruction of macroeconomics 
and overlapping somewhat with what Olivier said, the ways in which I believe this crisis will, over time, redefine the role of central banks. Macroeconomics. A premise of virtually everything I studied in graduate school and virtually everything I taught as a professor of macroeconomics for some years was that a coherent model had an equilibrium and that if conditions changed, it would move to a new equilibrium. Surely the events of the last few years call that proposition into question. If the world had unfolded forward from 2007 with no policy actions taken, no lending of last resort, no expansionary monetary policy, no expansionary fiscal policy, I would suggest to you that there is a real possibility that the right approximation would have been an unbounded downward spiral, a possibility ruled out in any textbook uh, model or almost any model published in a journal in the last several decades. Related, almost every treatment of macroeconomic fluctuations, whether of a so-called New Keynesian variety or of a so-called classical variety over the last 30 years, has presumed that output fluctuated, that it fluctuated around a trend that was determined from somewhere, and that if one managed policy badly, there would be more volatility, and if one managed policy well, there would be less volatility, but that the average level of output would not be affected by stabilization policy. That led many to believe that stabilization policy was a second-order uh, question. The events of the last six years surely demonstrate that an older view, that macroeconomics was about avoiding the waste associated with recessions, is the more important view. For no one could seriously suppose that if more enlightened regulatory and macroeconomic policy had mitigated what we have experienced for the last six years, that somehow all of the output that was lost, all of the employment that was lost, would somehow have been shaved off some future boom. And so the significance of stabilization policy becomes that much greater. And the type of model that is necessary, a model of periodic malfunction, becomes quite different from a model that presumes a constant mean and discusses only the center, uh, only the magnitude of cyclical fluctuations. In the same way, the events of the last years suggest that the traditional um, breakdown between the cyclical and structural uh, 
that is central to much of macroeconomic thinking has become highly problematic. If there's anyone in this room who believes that a reasonable forecast for the American Not, that, not to that extent. If there's anyone in this room who believes that a reasonable forecast for the U.S. or British economy at any future date would be represented by a trend line constructed through 2007 from any previous point, I have a bridge that I would like to sell you. Again, we are learning that cyclical developments have, or at least can have, very, lo very long-term structural implications. And of course, there's the observation that Olivier stressed, the centrality of the financial sector in understanding, if not all macroeconomic fluctuations, the ones like those we've just observed that are most consequential. It almost makes me wonder whether Keynes badly mistitled his book. Perhaps instead of titling it a general theory of employment, interest, and money, he might have titled it a specific theory of employment, interest, and money in conditions of depression and liquidity trap. Had he done so, there might have been two important benefits. The avoidance of the substantial errors of overexpansion and inflation carried out in the 1960s and 1970s in the name of Keynesian policy, and a greater willingness to heed some of the lessons of Keynes during this most recent uh, difficult uh, period. This will be a very different macroeconomics than the macroeconomics I studied or the macroeconomics that has been taught in the past. What about central banking? Central banking, as it was understood during my time in the Treasury, was complex in its implementation, but was not so complex in its basic vision. It was understood that surprising people with a little inflation was always a temptation because it would generate substantial output, but that it was a fool's game because when anticipated, you'd get only the inflation and not the output. And therefore, assigning responsibility for that function to society's most rectitudinous figures, like Mervyn, <laughs> insulating them from political pressure, making them accountable, would assure credible low inflation while making some room, perhaps along the lines of a Taylor rule or some such device, to contribute to reduced economic instability. It was a system that was implemented in different ways in different countries, and there was much discussion in the central banking community of different mandates, but the idea was always the same. 
But there is no role in that thinking for most of what has preoccupied us for the last five years. The provision of finance in extraordinary ways. Make no mistake, if a loan is absolutely riskless with certainty, absolute rigid certainty that it will be repaid, someone in the private sector will make it. And so when last resort financing is provided because no one other than the central bank will provide it, it is because there is some possibility in some contingency that it will not come back. That means taking credit risk. That's okay, but it's not quite the classic central banking theory. And yet, what central banks did in the 1930s, what central banks have done in the last six years, has probably been more consequential than everything they did in between. And so when central banks are most important, they're doing something for which their complete insulation at least raises more questions. Similarly, there are the questions of the interaction between monetary and fiscal policies. These arise when central banks pursue schemes directed at stimulating investment in particular sectors or stimulating lending in particular areas. An area that has always seemed to me most puzzling is the question of the maturity of a country's debt where it has been the case in more than one country in recent years that the central bank commits itself in the name of economic expansion to shortening the maturity of the public sector's outstanding debt and finance ministries in the name of assuring low long-term funding costs commit themselves to lengthening the maturity of the public sector's outstanding debt and one's left to wonder how these decisions are being made and whether they should be made in some consolidated uh, way. And then there is the question that Olivier uh, also referred to of macroprudential uh, supervision. Surely, whether you need to have as many targets as instruments it is surely a reasonable judgment that if you have more targets, it's good if you can think of more instruments. And as the aspirations for the kinds of problems that central banks are going to avoid proliferate, there's an inevitable desire for them to have more instruments. And yet those instruments, changing the down payments that people pay when they buy a house, inevitably touch on <coughs> issues of internet uh, issues of concern to voters and to the political process there is also the set of issues involved with exchange rates i 
find myself very much in agreement with uh, the very important distinctions that Ben Bernanke drew uh, a few moments ago between easing monetary policies in ways that lead a currency to depreciate and the imposition of a tariff in terms of its impact on uh, the global system. I think those distinctions are entirely correct. Nonetheless, the question of exchange rates is a question of international significance and in some cases of foreign policy importance. I do not doubt for a moment the importance of independent central banking. And I think it is very important to remember that just as the woes of the last five or six years reflect in part the fact that the lessons of the distant past about financial stability, about the need to maintain demand, <coughs> were forgotten. There is the risk that in the aftermath of this episode, the lessons of the 1980s and 1990s about the importance of credibility in resisting inflation will be forgotten. Nonetheless, I believe there is much that will need to be charted with respect to the role of central banks in free society. It has been my observation that one can speak freely, more freely at least, and think more widely outside of public office than in public office. <laughs> I think, therefore, it or academic office for that matter. <laughs> I think, therefore, if there is a silver lining in the fact that Mervyn King will no longer be in an official position of public service, it is that as a free man, he will be able to devote his formidable intellect to these very, very important questions. Thank you very much. Well, let me also start by uh, thanking the organizers for inviting me. Um, like all my previous uh, colleagues, I'm honored and privileged to be here to contribute to a conference uh, that looks at what Mervyn King has meant to the central banking world and what difference he makes. I go back with Mervyn till the late 80s. He might not remember that well. Uh, he was a professor at the London School of Economics. I was a young CPR fellow. I was frequently in London. I honored a lot of the things that he was doing that time as an academic. We met pre frequently when he was the chief economist at the Bank of England, and the period I treasure most was the seven years where we worked alongside each other as governors. Uh, to explain that a bit more in depth, uh, July 2007, when the financial crisis hit, the first victim was a German bank called IKB Bank, and we had plenty of victims in the year 2007 and 2008. So among the countries that had a banking system that was on the verge of collapse, we were doing some of the early frontline stabilization. And I frequently had discussions with Mervyn in that time. 
and uh, his suggestions and also his advice as an esteemed colleague with a lot of experience helped me to navigate through those periods. When I was just on the job a couple of years and not been a central banker before, not having had the privilege of working in such an institution for a long time, and I really go back and honor that period very much. Now, I've changed sides, so to say. I'm now in the private sector, who's getting a lot of flag now, especially having been stabilized, uh, largely through public intervention. So I feel a bit along the side uh, that was just mentioned, uh, that having left office, I can speak more freely. Uh, and what I'm going to do here is basically pour some water into the wine. Uh, I think what we heard a lot here was central banks are frequently entrusted with more and more tasks. They get more and more tasks and therefore need more and more instruments. My point is there is some expectation management in order here because as central banks obtain a larger core role in the economy, we do have to see the downside that this could potentially mean and therefore this expectation management is important. It's important to have that expectation management on unintended consequences or side effects of monetary policy and it's also important for the new roles that central banks are now getting more and more into, and that is a role in the supervisory world, a role in financial stability, a key player in financial market that increasingly sort of deals with banks from all, all angles, and that gives them a special responsibility. And I think it also uh, heightens the risk that central banks, if they get it wrong, they could get it wrong across a number of issues. Now, let me start very briefly, and I, I'm fully aware that time has progressed, uh, with just giving you uh, a very brief uh, view on what I think are the key issues now. The question of lessons learned that we heard before, and Mervyn put it right, we're not really out of the woods yet, so it may be a bit too early to draw some lessons learned, but my view is that the global financial sentiment, whilst it has improved since last summer, and whilst there are some overall signs of a more stable and improving macroeconomic backdrop, better financial conditions and a pickup of, of investment is unfolding, uh, this may be a period where the Cypriot developments that we've just seen over the last few days are a timely reminder that there is still remains high risks and the handling of complexity of stabilizing banking systems and stabilizing euro area problems is still out there. And maybe the mood that we've seen improve uh, was good, maybe too good, and maybe too good to be true. So I am still of the view that in a sense, I fear the recent rally in financial markets that we've seen could be a misleading signal. It is more driven by exceptionally expansionary monetary policy still and the relief that on both sides of the Atlantic we could avoid some disasters, but basically the underlying progress in the economy hasn't really made a meaningful uh, forward leap. The big policy issues on fiscal policy, on structural policies, on reforms are largely untackled and a fundamental rebound of economic activity is not yet clearly in sight. And we have to continue to remind ourselves that stabilizing growth and moving to a more sustained momentum has to occur against the backdrop of a hugely elevated debt position and deficits in most of the major countries that are unprecedented uh, for post-war history. Now, from a former central banker's perspective, in my view, and I'd like to chime in on uh, very briefly on, on the discussion about the externality that is produced by quantitative easing policies, uh, I fully agree with what was said here about the conduct of these policies and about sort of how it impacts on exchange rates, but there might be one dimension that I'm 
quite concerned about, and that is that the impact of quantitative policies seem to be larger in terms of impacting currencies uh, if they are conducted through quantitative purchases rather than short-term interest rate policies, probably because they very directly impact on the security markets which they, uh, which they deal with. And therefore, whilst domestic currency weakness is an expected and desirable outcome for, from a perspective of a central bank that's easing monetary policy via asset purchases, the impact on the foreign exchange value of currencies does not create any overall global demand. It just redistributes demands away from appreciating currencies. And in that sense, the quantitative impact of those policies operating through quantitative easing seem to be stronger in sort of leading to a debate whether global uh, distortions emanating from one country and impacting on the other are really an issue that can be dealt with. Like Ben, I think he gave the right answer. Countries that feel that impact have monetary policy tools at their disposal, and they should use them. However, whilst monetary policies that have been easing over most of the crisis period uh, have been adequate, in my view, for a large part into 2010, as of recently going forward, I think central banks are going to be much more pressed about giving clear answers to the questions of what an orderly exit from these policies will look like. We've known this for some time. Central banks cannot resolve deeper structural issues. They can provide funding. This will buy time. But sustainable growth really needs to be emerging from serious policy reforms. And in that sense, there is a necessary debate whether some of the quantitative easing policies that have bought time have really bought time in the sense that this time that was bought was used wisely by policymakers to do the right, inf- right reforms or whether an un- uh, constrained and so far uh, whether an unconstrained policy of that type doesn't really over time start setting the wrong incentives and actually delays the <coughs> It has side effects also in terms of financial market stability. We're seeing that in many areas and I think central banks really need to weigh very carefully whether continuing on, this policy, uh, on these policies will not down the road produce bigger problems. But Let me sort of talk very briefly also on some financial industry views. I'm quite concerned that the key role that central banks increasingly play outside monetary policy, and in particular in financial markets, as single supervisors of the largest banks, for example, in the Eurozone by the ECB, or the Bank of England taking over responsibility for prudential supervision, does not lead to a diversion uh, from the core mandate of central banks. Like very often, central banks have increasingly been asked to step up to the table and very frequently have been called the only game in town. I think, again, if that is the case, there is a potential problem of stretching the remit of central banks into areas where basically the overall monetary policy objective and the focus of central banks could get lost. You might remember that in Germany we had a debate whether the Bundesbank should be involved in banking supervision. It was an offer that came from the Treasury and it would have come at a price it would have come at the price that it would have created a reporting line towards fiscal authorities on any action we've taken as a banking supervisor. I was in charge of the central bank at the time, and whilst that offer seemed nice, I refused it flatly. And the Bundesbank at that point in time was fighting not to become the core of the new supervisory framework within Germany. I felt the downside risk towards monetary policy and towards the entire institutional setting in a reporting line to treasuries 
risk the uncertainty of the institution, and that for me was clearly a high, a pri- a high price, in my view, a price too high to pay, and that's why in Germany still the central bank, at least emanating from that discussion, does not have that role. I think it's a complex problem. I think it is something that central banks have to weigh very carefully, and even if I had to do it again, I would still come down on the side that I wouldn't risk the independence of an institution with a reporting line to, to treasuries when it comes to monetary policy and banking supervision under one roof. Very quickly, again, maybe on two more issues. As the new regulation, which I and Mervyn and many others have draft, is being phased in, I, from a financial sector perspective, have three major concerns, and I just want to highlight them but not go into that. The first one is, when we designed this new system, Basel III, <coughs> we all were of the view it should be phased in in a very homogeneous way across constituency. A harmonized implementation of a global regulatory environment was key. We're not seeing that. And as we see more and more local color around the global framework, and as we're seeing increasingly a focus on national implementation, it is getting very, very tedious for global institutions like UBS to develop a single approach to supervision because supervision becomes nuanced in various constituencies. There's a real cost to that, and I think you have to be quite cautious with that direction. The second one, in addition to a potential excessive national focus in implementing the common regulation, you have to be mindful to the extraterritorial impact of some of the regulatory measures. I'm quite concerned, running a bank in Switzerland, about some of the extraterritoriality provisions in uh, MIFID or in other regulations, for example, in the EU, which will prevent or at least mitigate the ability of international banks to provide financial services in the EU to the same degree as in their home markets or in the United States. That's a concern, and it will continue to fragment financial markets So my plea would be for regulators to really take that into account when drafting new regulation like CRD4 or others. And finally, I think you need to be mindful that as the new regulation is phased in, it happens in a way that is consistent with the dragged-out recovery that we're seeing. When we drafted the new regulation, all of us were concerned that we wouldn't be quick enough in asking the banks for more capital, better liquidity. I'm all in favor of all of these measures. We might have had different views on the time frame under which to implement these measures, and I think what you're seeing now is the regulators are starting to understand in a double-dip or potential threatening triple-dip scenario that some countries are going through, using the old speed that was concerned to all of us, that was a concern to all of us, and doing a very early upfront implementation might impact on the economic recovery. I think it's very good that the regulators in Basel III took into account, for example, a different timeline in phasing in some of the really difficult issue around liquidity. And I would really caution everyone in the press that if regulators take into account an economic environment and embark on a different time pass for implementing these measures, this should not be seen as a lobbying victory of the financial institutions. This has not been the case. Uh, financial institutions were asked, they voiced their concern in phasing in some of these measures, but it was a regulatory decision to take a different time frame. If that cannot happen because there is a two-confrontational discussion, I think we're losing a lot of what is useful interaction between banks and supervisors and regulators, and that is a timely feedback on the impact of the new regulation on how banks will behave. And so just to close, 
I find it very interesting, Mervyn, nowadays, having moved to the private sector, that some of the new regulation that was easily written down, it's very hard to implement in day-to-day business. <laughs> Thanks for the invitation. Now, the many interesting comments that were made, there were some fascinating views about the future role of central banks, on which I'm sure many of you will have questions. But before I throw it open to questions, I can't resist taking Larry's challenge that we need to reconstruct macroeconomics and getting the views of the others around the table. Ben, how would, uh, how would you reconstruct macroeconomics? <laughs> Well, I was thinking about uh, Olivier's uh, comments. Certainly, I agree that uh, bringing financial markets into macroeconomics is obviously critical. And I, I think back in the work that I did, and I was involved in academically, in some ways, we had taken steps in that direction. We had done work, I had done work uh, 30 years ago on the role of credit in the Great Depression. We'd done work on the um, uh, financial accelerator um, and how. Uh, the financial factors can play a role uh, in, you know, in, in exacerbating a downturn and so on. Uh, but the point that Olivier made was, was really very important, which is the details really matter a lot. So, for example, um, here's, here's, I think, a fundamental question. The decline in wealth associated with the tech bubble bursting and the decline in wealth associated with the decline in house prices as of, say, late 2008, was about the same, maybe even more, on the stock bubble. And so from a basic, uh, from a standard uh, macro model, or from even one uh, elaborated with um, uh, financial factors, you wouldn't have really thought that the housing bubble would have been more damaging than the stock bubble. That, that was the question. Now, the reason it was so much more damaging, of course, as we know now, is that the credit intermediation system, the, the, the financial system, the, the financial institutions, the markets, were far more vulnerable to declines in house prices and the related effects on mortgages and so on than they were to decline in stock prices. And it was essentially the destruction of the ability of the financial system to intermediate credit in a normal way that was you know, the reason that the recession was so much deeper in, in the second instance than in the first. To understand that, uh, you really have to know the details of how the banks and individual institutions are exposed to housing and to mortgages, for example, in ways which the institutions themselves didn't really fully understand at the time. So I think there's no, and, and this goes to something that um, Axel was saying, I, I don't think you can completely separate uh, central yeah. banking and financial regulation. I think it's important for central banks, first of all, as lender of last resort, but secondly, in their role of, of understanding uh, the, the transmission of monetary policy, macroeconomic dynamics, financial stability, of having that expertise and ability to uh, understand the details of the financial system. Olivia, how far is it just a question of getting the right details into our models, or is there something more profound that we need to take on board? The, um, it's, it's good to come second, because while Ben was talking, I was thinking about <laughs> what it was. You were reconstructing. So I have the answers. The, uh, <laughs> so suppose you were writing two textbooks, one undergrad, one grad, just 
They, uh, in the undergrad textbook, it seems to me that when teaching the ISLM, we have the same interest rate in the IS and the same interest rate in the LM. Basically, the policy rate that the central bank uses is also the one which goes into the IS, corrected for expected inflation. And I think what we've learned is that these two can be incredibly different. And so I would probably have uh, an R and an RB and then have a machine in the middle, a bank, which would basically, depending on its health, determine the spread. It seems to me that, that again, if I want to communicate one message, this would be the one message that I would communicate to undergraduates. At the graduate level, I mean, we now, we now have this explosion of DSG malls, which put one friction and another. It seems to me that, again, in terms of pedagogy, uh, there are really two, two mechanisms which seem to be, to be central. One is leverage, and you know, it started with Ben's work and, and work before that, but, and I think that we have a sense of how to deal with it. And the other is liquidity, and I think there we're much less uh, far along the way. Uh, again, in terms of putting it together, I'm hoping that at some stage we'll have a simple way of thinking about leverage, a simple way of thinking about liquidity, and these two things will come in our new engine or whatever you want, standard machine, and, and we'll be able to tell a relatively simple story. We're at the stage that with the DSG models have much too much in them to fully, to fully be understood, but I think maybe we can get there. So this is a very engineering-based yeah. answer to your question, but that's what I would try to do. Thank you. Axel, have you, with your practical experience, more recently changed your views about how you think about leverage and liquidity? No, I, I think one of the things that really struck me when I was at one of the meetings, I can recall that, in Davos, uh, I was invited to a group of banks now, Deutsche Bundesbank is frequently mixed up in international <coughs> invitations with Deutsche Bank. So <laughs> I was the only central banker sitting on a panel with only banks. And to prepare for it, it was about securitizations. And I asked my people to prepare, and I asked the typical macro question, who are the 20 biggest suppliers of securitization products, and who are the 20 biggest buyers? And I got a paper, and they were both the same set of institutions. <laughs> and when I was at this meeting, and I should have really sort of been at these meetings earlier, I was talking to the banks and I said uh, that it, it looks to me that since the buyers and the sellers are the same institutions as a system, they haven't diversified anything. And unfortunately, that was one of the things that, I, that struck me, uh, that the industry wasn't too much aware of at the time that whilst your treasury department was reporting that they were buying a lot of these products, your credit department would have told you that they sold all the risk because they securitized them. What was missing, and that's sort of where I think that the, the view is important for what can be learned in economics from it, is finance and banking was too much viewed as a microeconomic issues, and you're writing a lot of books about the details of microeconomic banking and there was too little systemic views of banking and what the system as a whole would develop like. So the whole view at a systemic crisis, it was just basically locked out of the discussions in textbooks. And I think that's the one big lesson that we've learned. I now, when I'm on the board of a bank, I try and bring to that bank a view, don't let us optimize the quarterly results, don't let us talk too much about our own 
idiosyncratic. Let's, let's look at the system. Let's try and get a better understanding of where the system is going, where the macroeconomic is going, and that helps me a lot. So in, in a way, I take a central banker's more systemic view to what typically is an institution-specific deliberations about idiosyncratic own risk, and I try and bring back this systemic view. And by and large, I think that helps me a bit better to understand where we should go uh, in terms of how we manage risk and how we look at risks of the bank rather than risks of the system. Thank you. Larry, how far are your fellow panelists doing in reconstructing? <laughs> you know, I was tempted to sort of blast off a dynamic stochastic general. <laughs> <laughs> and that is actually my inclination. On the other hand, it occurred to me to ask the question, what, what is it that wouldn't be a dynamic stochastic general equilibrium model? It would be a static certain partial equilibrium model, and it's hard to see how that would represent any kind of improvement. So I guess I can't be against dynamic stochastic general equilibrium on principle. Having said that, I think that maybe I will be proven wrong over time. I think there's a central question, which is, should we think of macroeconomics as being about as it was thought about before Keynes, and as it came to be thought about again in the 1990s, as being about cyclical fluctuations around something that was determined someplace else, where the goal, if you were successful, was to reduce their amplitude? Or should we think of it as centrally about tragic accidents where millions more people are unemployed for millions more person years at costs of trillions of dollars that are avoidable with more satisfactory economic arrangements. And unless and until we adopt the second vision, I think we are missing what is our principal opportunity to achieve human betterment and as long as the question is conceptualized as what new friction should we insert into the existing model and then we'll have it, I don't think we're going to get to the kind of perspective that I'm advocating. Now, it's easy to, give this, it's easy to say this. It's much harder to provide a constructive uh, vision. Uh, of just how to do it, but there are a number of schools of work that to date, I think, have um, been sufficiently abstract that they've not made easy connection with practical policy problems that involve multiple equilibria or involve fragile uh, equilib uh, equilibria that have the prospect of capturing the kind of notion that there are these periods where you have a very bad outcome that you somehow could avoid without compromising uh, the future uh, in a very serious way. Because it really is true that a little bit of avoiding what's happened for the last six years is worth a lot of making the amplitude of the fluctuations uh, smaller. 
And it seems hard to observe the last six years, which didn't actually achieve that much disinflation, and not think that somehow it should have been possible to avoid that waste. That's the perfect point at which to give you a chance to ask the panelists questions. Please give your name and affiliation. Ask a short question. Don't waste your time by asking what may happen to policy next week. <laughs> and uh, there are roving microphones. So question down here, and then we we'll go upstairs. Next, next to you, sir, later. Uh, David Morgan, a former policy advisor and commercial banker and currently investor in banks, um, is one of the potential learnings that given the inevitably expanded mandate of central banks, that in the future that will have significant implications for the skill set and the experience base of central banks generally and central bank governors specifically. I don't know exactly where you go to school to learn how to be a central banker <laughs> now. It takes, uh, it takes a wide variety of uh, skills, many of which are learned on the job, I had to say. Um, the, uh, there may be institutional solutions. If there's no individual person who can embody all the different things that are engaged, that's assuming we don't adopt Axel's uh, more spare vision. Uh, but I think of the Bank of England, for example, as uh, uh, creating an interesting structure which also involves uh, perhaps solves at least to some extent the governance issues that were being raised which which is the separate having the monetary council and the financial council and having them coordinate and having different sets of skill sets you know on those two councils um, so I think it's, it's much an institutional problem and having sure that you have the range of set, uh, skills and that they're talking to each other so at the Federal Reserve we've done a lot more interdisciplinary work where the economists talk to the supervisors who talk to the financial people who talk to the etc. Um, that having the right skill sets and having them talk to each other is just as important as having the right person or people at the top. The LSC is the perfect place to learn. Yes. <laughs> I'm not a central banker. So I'll pass, I'll pass it on to... Uh... I'm no longer a central banker. <laughs> <laughs> I could add that uh, I guess what Ben said is absolutely right. The richness of expertise in the central bank when you come from the outside and the quality of work throughout all the divisions it's actually something that is very surprising these are well-run well-oiled machines that work very well and so being the governor at the top of an institution like that you become very humbled at the start uh, because people are very aware of what they're doing I still would maintain the view that there is no conflict between what Ben indicated being a central bank and being a regulator because I think getting regulation right I do see some conflicts in the supervisory framework that I alluded to. And it largely comes that if you have, usually the typical reflex if there is a financial crisis is you blame the supervisors who were in charge when it went wrong. You then change it to another supervisor. In the next crisis, you change it back. And, uh, so what typically happens is Just those that have been in charge of supervision get blamed. And if all of this is in the central bank, there are some inherent conflicts between 
providing liquidity and covering up some of the oversight problems that you may not have encountered. And so I still think it is actually something that uh, a lot speaks for that, but it's disputable. Uh, I think probably in a, in a German environment, you come out on a separation of role, where in many other central banks there are actually arguments for coming down on a different set. But by and large, I think central banks are now really trying to hire people from the financial industry. And I can tell you, since there are many layoffs, there are people available. <laughs> Keynes um, famously looked forward to the day when economists would be regarded like dentists. He didn't have in mind that they were people with whom he dreaded contact. <laughs> Nor did he have in mind that you were people who imposed great pain. And I don't think we've reached uh, that point. But one thing dentists do have is a very substantial and very specific expertise. And I think if you look at the world's central bankers today, and you look at the world's central bankers 30 or 40 years ago, you will find that there's been a substantial change towards people whose previous life experience has involved some substantial contact with the world of economics or some substantial contact with the world of uh, financial markets who have some substantial capacity to deal with quantitative uh, analysis. And I think that is a reflection of the demands being somewhat different uh, than uh, they have been uh, in the past, my guess would be that that trend will continue. Thank you. Now, the gentleman up there, the question. Yeah. Thank you very much. My name is Fadia San, and I'm a PhD student here at the LSE. Uh, Dr. Bernanke mentioned the problem of exchange rate misalignments during the gold standard and how monetary policy was constrained in that period. And I wonder if we can draw some parallel with the current situation in the Eurozone, where maybe the misalignment of real exchange rate is among the deep reasons of the current crisis. So the question is if, if there is a parallel for that. And also, what, what is the lesson that we learn of uh, having monetary policy in the currency union? We, we, we hear the vision of UK, of US. I wonder if we can draw some conclusion also for, for the European Central Bank. Thanks. Thank you. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, uh, there's this basic question of the optimal currency union. What's the right size for a single monetary policy? And uh, the, uh, there are obviously some areas where, um, uh, where the Europe uh, is an optimal currency union in the sense of the similarity of economies, the benefits of trade, the credibility advantages of having a central bank that uh, has a uh, a low inflation target, very credible, keeps interest rates low. At the same time, you know, we have uh, differences across countries now in terms of competitiveness, um, in terms of the uh, stage of the cycle. So I think it's a, it's a, mixed, it's a mixed picture. There's it, it, also not the same complexities of the 30s um, of dealing with, um, uh, you know, zero. I mean, this rates are very low, but, but uh, we the deflationary impact that we saw during the 30s, for example, uh, not only in the U.S., but in Germany <coughs> and elsewhere, uh, we're not at that point uh, either. So I don't have a clean answer for you. There are some, uh, there are some obvious advantages of 
of a unified uh, currency, but uh, in a situation as we have now, um, there are also clearly some um, uh, differences in ability to adjust. Part of this, these differences are endogenous, which is why it's important that Europe keep developing, for example, the single uh, banking union to create that uh, complementarity there and the fiscal uh, work that's being done. So to some extent, you can build a currency union where one may not exist naturally. A word from Olivier, and then we'll go to a question. Yeah, I think that on, on currency areas, the, the work of Mondel remains uh, basically, uh, I, I hate to say, the gold standard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and it's clear, it was known from the start, that it didn't quite, didn't quite uh, satisfy all the conditions, but it was thought to uh, have many other benefits that uh, were important uh, and have some cost. And, and we've learned about some of the cost, which is a difficulty of achieving uh, internal devaluations. Um, what's interesting in this crisis is that we've learned that there were at least two elements left out of Mondel's uh, 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 analysis, which is indeed what Ben referred to, the fiscal union and the banking union, which I think we had not fully understood uh, how important they were uh, in, in, in thinking about how it could work. Well, thank you very much. My name is Richard Surinjogi, and I'm an elected member of the Court of Governors here at the LSE. Um, my question, I think, touches upon Larry's sentiments, and so I'd like to know from each of you, what do you feel is the purpose of economic growth and prosperity? I personally believe it's, you know, to better and improve people's well-being, but feel free to disagree with me. And how could we better leverage economic growth and prosperity to achieve that that well-being, particularly over, say, like the next 20 odd years, um, particularly looking at perhaps even up to 2030. Thank you. Thank you. It's a perfect question on which to end. So let me ask you to go to Maxwell. Well, I guess uh, one of the concerns I have with the current excessively loose monetary and fiscal policies is there is a set of generations around that isn't around the table. So I think a lot of what we're seeing now is basically trying to achieve a dynamic in the economy that is unsustainable long-term and therefore will come to the detriment of future generations. And therefore, uh, I'm quite concerned that keeping monetary and fiscal policy very loose for an unsustainable long period of time might generate some gross numbers that we see now that look good for current generations but actually come at the expense of future generations. So I'm quite concerned about the intertemporal aspect here uh, in really trying, whether we're really trying to counter something that we look at as being cyclical, but if it's actually more structural, we look, throw a lot of stimulus at it and basically undermine the future. So I'm quite concerned about that intertemporal aspect of what we're doing here, both in monetary and fiscal policy. Thank you, Andrew. I think you got it right when you spoke of allowing people to have higher living standards, more choices uh, in uh, their lives, and to live more comfortably. I can't resist uh, taking the opportunity, though, to disagree with the broad spirit of Axel's last comment. <laughs> I do not believe that the long run can be ceded to the avatars of austerity. Yes, 
I am the father or stepfather of six children. And yes, on their behalf, I am concerned about the possibility that an overly inflationary psychology will develop in my country. Yes, on their behalf, I am concerned that an excessive debt will be placed upon them. But I am vastly more concerned because I care about their long-run future, that a slack economy will not provide them with satisfactory jobs when they leave school. I am more concerned on behalf of their future that they will live in a country with decaying uh, infrastructure that will not permit investment that maintains leadership. I am more concerned on their behalf that inadequate uh, resources forced by countercyclical austerity will stunt the ability of their generation uh, to be educated. I am more concerned on their behalf that excessively austerity-oriented policies will lead to slower economic growth and as a consequence to an ultimately higher debt-to-GDP ratio and more pressure in terms of higher tax burdens in the future. And those concerns which come out of the proper management of current conditions seem to me to be a larger concern for the long run than the concern that somehow unstable and overly expansionary policy starting from where we are now will stunt uh, the opportunities that are open to them. Now, of course, if the policy were starting in a different place, I would reach uh, a different judgment. But starting where the United States or much of Europe or much of the industrialized world is today, it seems to me that the risks of, uh, the risks of profound stagnation are more pressing concern than the risks of a resurrection of stagflation. Thank you. Olivia, your limit is whole world. So I'll do this at a meta level. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not a growth freak in the sense that maximizing the growth rate doesn't strike me as a, as a desirable objective. And uh, the work on happiness, I see Richard sitting in the front row, strikes me as, as extremely relevant. Uh, this being said, from, again, uh, engineering, mechanical point of view, it's very hard to see how Europe is going to get out of its fiscal mess in particular uh, without maintaining uh, some substantial growth over the next uh, two, one or two decades. And so I think we have to focus on policies which increase growth in Europe, at least for that period. After this, we can have another meeting. <laughs> <laughs> the final word. Let me uh, sharpen the question the following way. Suppose you had a choice between the same level of GDP in the UK as we have today, but higher employment. Which, which would you take? And economists would tell you, well, the lower employment, of course, because all this leisure is valuable. And that just shows you how economists think. Right? <laughs> so why is, it, why is it that when we look at uh, the data at the Federal Reserve, we're looking at the GDP growth numbers, but we're also looking at the unemployment rate? And I think the unemployment rate and employment numbers have a separate welfare implication holding constant the amount of output because it implies 
uh, distributional issues. It implies uh, personal dignity and personal opt- opportunity. Um, and it's just one way in which economists, by looking at employment numbers, uh, it's just one way in which economists are essentially acknowledging that the, the simplest microeconomic um, utility function is not quite enough to capture all the things that matter to people in the economy. Well, we've had the chance to listen to four wonderful economists. Now I'm going to invite back to the stage a fifth, your very own Tim Bell. <laughs> well, thank, thank you very much, uh, Mervyn, and thanks to all of our panelists who, I'm sure you'll agree, provided us with uh, uh, a huge number of interesting and important insights. I think what stood out for me was the fusion of the academic side and the policy <coughs> side, many things ranging over both contemporary issues but also their implications for the kinds of things we study and teach as economists. Um, so, uh, and, and I should also acknowledge the fact that many of the panellists came from a great distance to be with us this evening. So uh, I'd like you to join with me in thanking the panel for a wonderful <laughs>